Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show takes guests in the barrel, behind the scenes with the people who've been there, done that, and seen the results. Revenue Builders covers best practices for scaling and growing your business while sharing the pitfalls to avoid. Great conversation, solid interviews, tangible takeaways to help you succeed. If you enjoy the content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting edition of the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John McMahon, and I'm here with the man that's now functioning at a higher brain mode so he can dock his boat safely, the big man, the one and only Johnny Cap. How you doing, Cap? I'm doing fantastic, Johnny Mac. Really, really excited for our guest today, brother. Yeah, Cap, at one time, our guest was on the French National Downhill team. I don't know if you knew that. I met him when he was a sales rep at PTC in Bologna, Italy, where we made sales calls on a lot of well-known names like Ducati, Ferrari, GD. Now, at the time, Cap, he had left his home country of France to be under the wing of one of the best managers in Italy. Now, his willingness to leave France and move to Italy, where he spoke little to no Italian and worked for an American company where he spoke no English, told me everything I needed to know about this man's desire to succeed. Hmm. So since then, Cap, he's moved up the ranks in sales, managing Italy at PTC, becoming VP of Southern Europe for Blade Logic, and then GM of Europe for BMC, Fuse, Bizarre Voice, and then MongoDB. Uh, he was promoted to CRO of MongoDB in February 2019. Since then, he's faced the diversity of challenges running a sales force with multiple routes to market. Here's what I mean. They have a free product. They have a paid cloud product. They have an on-prem product. they got inside sales groups in Austin, Dublin, Bangalore. He's got a direct sales force in 35 countries. He's managing SIs, cloud partners, resellers, ISV partners, and in addition, he recently took on the responsibility to manage client success. Cap, please help me welcome my good friend, super talent, coming from high in the mountains at Les Du Alps, Cedric Pesh. Bonjour, mon ami. <laughs> Bonjour, mon ami. <laughs> Comment allez-vous? Oh, that's impressive, John. I mean, wow. uh, you're fluent in many languages, including German, but I didn't know about the French one. <laughs> it's so great. So great to have you, Cedric. So great to have you. Welcome. Uh, thank How you long for did it take you to practice that, Cap? Buddy, I placed out of French in college, man. You did? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, but remember, I mean, I went to Bowling Green, so I don't mean, I probably couldn't even talk to Cedric any more than that. Wow. Great to see you, Ced. Great to see you. Yeah, likewise. Hey, Cedric, let's start with how you got your job at PTC. You know, like when I first met you, like I said, you were French, went to uh, Italy to work under great manager Carlo Carpinelli. Talk a little bit about why you did that, how you did that. You know, give us a little glimpse of, of, of that move. Yeah, well, I guess there was a, a little uh, luck involved there. I uh, remember uh, getting a fax, uh, which doesn't make me feel any younger in my, in my previous, you know, internship job. And there was like a, it was from the business school. They were saying that there was this American company looking for reps and long story short, I start these interviews and I get into a guy which at the time was leading Europe. His name was Kirk Bowman. Do you remember that guy? Yeah, yeah. sure. And uh, I was hardly speaking English, even, even worse than today. And uh, I remember he asked me at the end of the interview where I wanted to go and work. And I guess that's one of the rare times that I did an interview since then. But I, I had a good answer, the only one of the whole interview. And I told him anywhere in the world, as long as it's for the best leader that you have. And then he, uh, he committed to that. I signed a contract and, uh, and then uh, I was headed to Italy the next day. Um, and uh, we packed my luggage. And as you said before, exactly in this way, uh, I've never been there before. And uh, I hardly spoke Italian. And I met this guy called Carlo Carpanelli. Um, Bowman kept his word, uh, that's for sure, that day. Yeah. It was amazing. I remember we picked you up in Carlo's Porsche. <laughs> yeah. You, you get in the back. You don't speak a word of 
English, so I can't talk to you. Carlo can barely talk to you, but we're going, yeah. we're still going to make sales calls. Let's go. Yeah. That was, that was a funny time. I remember that very well. Hey, Cedric. So you've had an amazing career so far and, you know, still more to come. You're the VP of, you know, four software companies, now the CRO at MongoDB. Can you talk about the biggest challenge that you've faced moving from the VP role to the CRO role? Uh, yes, from the VP of Europe to the CRO job. Yeah. So I guess that, you know, the size, I mean, there are different elements right here. There is a, an element which is around moving to uh, playing in your, in your backyard and knowing you're, you know, being two hours away from everyone in your team and running a team of 200, 300 people uh, to moving into a global, global role all across the world with many different cultures and, um, and uh, frankly speaking, uh, not touching everyone every week any longer, right? <laughs> now you've got like 2,000 people and it didn't happen overnight, surely, but uh, in the US, in Indonesia, in Indonesia, in you know Australia, in India, in Europe, everywhere, in North America, in South America. So all of a sudden, the size of what you do is different and then the complexity is clearly a little different. So all of a sudden, you realize that you can't manage those teams in the same way that you used to manage the previous one, right? You have, you know, multiple layers of leaders underneath you. So there is, uh, there is also this, this concept of, you know, how am I going to still influence people on a global scale when I don't touch them every, every day? And where it's not only about me running a playbook and putting a, together a couple of trainings and, uh, and, you know, deciding what the ideal customer profile is, or it's like a bigger problem, which is like, how do I set a vision how do I make clear what we stand for in terms of values as a team so that people have a sense of orientation on a global scale without you being there every day, whether they are ICs, individual contributors, or you know, first-line leaders or second-line leaders or whatever. That working on that aspect of the job has been quite, quite important, uh, quite a difference. The other aspect is the complexity, because as you mentioned before, it's one thing to manage a direct Enterprise software sales team, it's another one to have uh, multiple channels starting from product-led growth channels, partners, hyperscalers, which are both friends and, and, and partners and, and once upon a time enemies, SIs all over the world and, uh, and more. So all of that complexity, all of a sudden you start uh, to have to deal with that and integrate these different channels so that they work together and not against each other. That was a big difference as well. Yeah. And you, you touched on this a little bit, but you've done an amazing job getting your team to bond as one and then buy into the team's purpose. So, which is, I think is really important because a lot of people are always sitting back asking, you know, why am I doing what I'm doing? Especially during COVID, a lot of people ask that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about why purpose is so important to the team and the motivation of the team? I think it starts from uh, you, meaning like you like there is a moment where you wake up in the morning and it's so hard that you, uh, you know, you, you ask yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing? And when the moment you start asking that, then you start needing to dig into yourself and, you know, do some introspection to come up uh, with answers, right? Uh, and sometimes you don't come up with answers and therefore it's too hard and not worth, not worth it. And some, sometimes you do come up with answers. Then from the moment you come up with answers for yourself, then it's about how do I articulate that to the rest of my team? And are others feeling the same thing? Because you do push. The more indexed you are on execution, the more you push your people to the brink, the more they do ask that question to themselves as well. Yes. Uh, if they are intelligent, right? Sure. And they are obviously very intelligent. So then it's really about doing the work together with the team um, to come up with collective answers, personal answers to these questions. Why, as a VP of North America, am I doing what I'm doing and working 60 hours a week and going for the pain that it takes uh, to do that? What is motivating me? And as a team, what values do we stand for? If we say, you know, we stand for excellence and innovation 
What does that mean practically for the people working around us? Right. What's in it for them? How are they going to benefit from us building an excellent, outstanding team uh, or us being committed to innovation in their day-to-day work? So all this work of, um, you know, uh, let's let's say team introspection uh, as well as as uh, as personal introspections as uh, as senior leaders, I think it's very important because you know I all, now I start seeing the world of sales leaders in three buckets, right? You've got the you've got the sales leaders who promise a, a great paycheck and a couple of trainings, and in 2021, frankly, uh, these leaders fall in the category of uh, of those which uh, don't really know what they are doing. So let's drop them and focus on the others, right? But uh, the remaining ones, you have these two categories. You have these leaders which are super sharp on, you know, defining the messaging and the ideal customer profile, the market you want to focus on, the recruiting profiles and productivity models and all these things, which are very important tools, but they are all execution oriented, right? And then you have this, uh, and, and if you have, this is very, very, very important to excel at that from the execution standpoint. But if you don't go beyond that, and don't explain your people why is it that they need to excel at these at, on that side of things, you know, sales execution rather than qualification and so on and so forth. Then they they really quickly start feeling that this is a grinding organization, all focused on execution and not very inspiring. And the next thing you know is that they are here exclusively for uh, for a paycheck, um, which needs to be there anyways, but it can't, it's, it's never enough. There is a moment where if it's only about the paycheck, the team starts saying, you know, I can't take that. It's too hard, at least if you pretend to excel. And, um, and this is where I think the third category of leaders come, or at least sales organizations come, which, you know, really work on, uh, on defining that vision. Uh, and it's quite a journey. You don't, you don't show up, you know, a morning, and you say, here's, I'm going to write my vision on the wall or my team vision on the wall. And then I'm going, it's a little like, and if you don't do that, it's a huge waste of energy in, the, in it. Like it's a little like, you know, Martin Luther King saying, I have a dream. And then turning to, uh, to the crowd and saying, uh, and my dream is that you guys are all going to make a lot of money. <laughs> it's just a little yeah. like that, right? It's right. like, very, it's odd. It's weird. Right? right. So there is this whole process of working together in order to to come up. I have a dream. Let's define that dream. Uh, let's see if this is authentic. It's us or it's someone else, you know, dream. Uh, and how are we going to execute on it? Uh, and how is this connected to tomorrow morning and what we are going to do tomorrow morning? That's a lot of work. And your point is on the dream part, it, when you're the leader, it's got to be a big enough dream that people are going to be willing to sacrifice. People are going to be willing to put in the grind. People are going to be willing to uh, to do things that they just normally wouldn't do. So the dream has to be big enough and meaningful enough. There is this uh, quote from this French author, John, which, uh, which used to say that if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them task and work only, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Yeah. So, you know, it's uh, when you define the sales process, when you train people on it and qualifying things, these are all incredibly important uh, things to do without which there is no way to build anything, right? Like uh, it's, it's about gathering the wood and, 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 and giving the task and so on and so forth, right? You make them competent at doing that. But the more you grind them on that, the more you push excellence in execution, the more you need to remind them every day about the uh, what the immensity of the sea looks like. Otherwise, those guys are, after a while, they are like, you know, I'm screw driving. I've been screw driving for four days here or four, five days. <laughs> I, I, I forgot why I was, what I was building, right? I don't even understand I was building a ship and I was supposed to sail on the endless ocean one day. So as a leadership team, you do need to be able to define what that endless ocean looks like and how are we going to get there all together and what does a ship look like and keep that vision always connected. Yeah, that builds the or answers the question, as you pointed out, what's in it for me? You have to, everybody has that written on their forehead and you have to be able to answer that question. Hey, Johnny and Cedric. Just just one other piece on what Cedric said. You know, when people are there only for the paycheck, 
they'll stay in as long as that paycheck's good. Something goes wrong with the company, you know, stock goes down, the paycheck's not as good. That's when people just jump really quickly. But if yeah. they think that they're inspired and they understand what's in it for them and you're training them to be very competent at what they do so they can be self-sufficient, then I think that's when people, you know, stay with you and just don't jump at the first time. I, th- I think it's specifically uh, important now, John, uh, because, you know, not, like with what's going on in the market right now, you know, if, if as right. a, an organization, you've been telling your people that they should come because of their only, only because of their big equity package and, and big OTEs and so on and so forth, then what happens is that you expose yourself to have these same people coming and say, you know, what about that evaluation that you've got last year for multiple billions of dollars? Is it still, you know, valid right now or am I underwater? Or they're going to say, you know, how far am I from this liquidity event that you're promising me? And, uh, and next thing you know, that does create chaos and, and, uh, and, and, and attrition in the sales organization because you are just ripping what you've been, you know, <laughs> preaching substantially. And I see a lot of, uh, I think this is going to be interesting to see in the next couple of years what's going to happen. Yeah. I think the, uh, I think the, you, all three of us, we were doing a fireside chat, I think, for an SKO at MongoDB, and this concept came up, and we, we labeled what we're talking about right now as great leaders build patriots versus mercenaries. And what, what I'm seeing is in tough times and what I saw in tough times of COVID, you know, the organizations that were built on mercenary Cedric, this, you know, the first uh, bucket that you were speaking about from a leadership perspective, that's focused just on comp and paycheck and stock price. And when all that got, you know, put under pressure, many of the mercenaries picked up their guns and or dropped their guns and went home. And like, as a leader, we talked about, you know, and I think what you do so well, Cedric, is that you focus on building, you know, a culture of patriots that are focused on the why and the, you know, when the tough times, like my favorite story about a patriot is the tough times come, the patriots, they go home, they break up their furniture and they, you know, they use the, they melt down the metal parts for more bullets, you know, versus the mercenaries dropping their guns and going home. So I, 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 I often think about that when I think about leaders like you, Cedric, tough times come. And that's when companies that are led by people that really focus on doing the things that you're talking about doing, they, they hold their people intact. Yeah, there's so a well saying that when people understand the why, they can handle the how, Yeah, which is so important. Yeah. Hey, can we do, I didn't want to uh, move over this because in your intro, Johnny, you talked yeah. about in your intro. You talked about um, uh, Cedric, you know, uh, going to Italy and working for him, just an incredible leader. And then Cedric, you kind of talked about, you know, your your prerequisite was I want to go work for a great leader, and they they put you with this great leader. One of my favorite stories, Cedric, and I think that this individual was just such an incredible leader and left such a great legacy. Um, would you mind just telling us the the characteristics of that leader and why they were so important to you as a young seller uh, back in the day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's, uh, you know, joining uh, PTC, I, w- I think I was 23, was a little like, uh, how can I describe that? Like uh, Dora the Explorer in Jurassic Park. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Like, I don't know if it translates in English, but yeah, it does. Phone, right? uh, or maybe the Care Bears in Jurassic Park, right? It's like the same. You're like, you come to this organization and you're like, holy shit, what's going on here, right? Like, um, and uh, but lucky enough, and I'm saying that because you have to admit uh, with uh, as much uh, sincerity as I can that the reason I was able to survive that is because of uh, is because I had a I had a great leader. And uh, I, I just tell this story because it was a few months in the job and uh, my brother comes to Bologna, Italy, and he's, uh, he's going to go for a worldwide backpacking trip. And, uh, and he spent the weekend with me and, you know, spending the whole weekend going in industrial areas to pick up names, to prospect on Monday, right? And, 
I had this recorder, this little recorder in my car, and I was, you know, recording those names in this industrial area so that on Monday I could pick up the phone and know who to call substantially. And it was difficult back to what John was saying because, like, my uh, in Italian uh, wasn't that great. And so it was a lot of a lot going on in my life. And my brother does such a good job that on Sunday night he tells me that, convinces me that I need to quit and, and go for this, you know, worldwide backpacking trip, right? And uh, it's a daunting moment because it's Monday morning and I show up in the office in uh, San Lazzaro di Savena, which is close to Bologna. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the moment where, the crucial moment where I'm going to have to tell Carlo that it's over, right? So I'm sitting in my desk, it's 7.30 in the morning and he's supposed to show up at 7.30 and, you know, I'm sweating. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> he gets into, into the office and instead of turning right back into his own office, uh, he's very smart. He sees me there and probably my body language was betraying me. He goes straight to my office, but he, st- he's, uh, he stares in mine and goes like, how are you doing? And I'm starting to mumble and, you know, Carlo, I think, you know, I might have not made the right decision for myself. And before I end up, I finish my sentence, he goes like, uh, where are you living those days? And I'm like, you know, I'm, you should know that because you signed my expert reports. I'm, I'm in a hotel in the suburbs of Bologna and, you know, I did, I, that's where I am, right? And he goes, he stops me and goes like, you're going to stop here. You're going to take three days off. You're going to go and find an apartment for yourself. And once you are settled and in a good place, you come back to work. I don't want to see you before that. His intuition was off the charts. Yeah, 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 100%. Uh, but like, as far as I was concerned, it wasn't really the direction I wanted to take that conversation toward, right? So I'm like, I'm like holy shit. How do-? So I tried last one. And I tell him, you know, which was the truth, I don't have the money to make a down payment to get that apartment anyway. So it's not an option. So I'm trying, I was trying to work myself out of this conversation, right? <laughs> Before I can understand what's going on, he pulls out his, uh, his paycheck and writes a 3 million lire check, which was probably at the time the largest check I had ever seen. And, uh, and he, he hands me all this check and I'm like, I've, I've known you for two months. I don't, I don't do that. And, and by the way, I'll never be able to give you this money back, Carlos. Uh, and the guy has that line, which does differentiate great leaders from others. At the right moment, in the right place, he goes, you are going to give me that money back when you get your first commissions. And, you know, I'm sitting on my chair in a long moment of loneliness. Because, like, I'm like, this guy believes in me more, that, more than I believe in myself. Mm, right? That's powerful. And therefore, I'm like... I, I can't, I can't give up on this guy. I can't quit on this guy. I can't, I just, I just can't watch myself in the mirror in the morning. And, and that has been an important lesson for me as I reflected about, about it when I was, uh, when I grew up in my career, because at the end of the day, we are not in the software business. We are in the people business, right? And to the extent that uh, us as leaders can actually get involved authentically, not talking about, you know, faking it, but authentically in uh, being curious about what's going on in our, in our uh, team's life. And, uh, and actually, uh, we, it's a buzzword, like caring about them and, and making a difference. That does. That can have a giant motivational impact on people. It had on me, for sure. Uh, and I never forgot it, right? We worked 10 years together. I never, never, ever uh, I'm very, very um, bad at taking directions. I'm pretty good at taking inputs. Uh, I was very difficult to handle. And uh, he was able to build a partnership with me, uh, which I would have never betrayed at any price. And that's what happened. So when I, I want to look at that from a couple of lenses. Obviously, the leadership lens is unbelievable. It is he understands your body language. He's looking for more than just what your numbers are. He's looking at you as an individual. Getting intimate with your uh, people is just a, we talk about that a lot on Revenue Builders. I want to flip the lens for a second because there's a lot of great uh, potential in young sellers that are hearing this story and hearing other stories like that, whether they have a leader like that or don't have a leader like that, sit yourself in the seat of a new seller or a new employee and talk to us a little bit about the advice that you would give that new employee that's overwhelmed, whose brother is like trying to 
get them to make the biggest mistake on the planet, you know, go backpacking, leave corporate America or leave corporate world and, you know, go backpacking. Give some advice to the sellers that are swinging for the fences right now. Don't really feel like they're making it. You maybe don't have the greatest leader. Um, what advice would you give them? I will give them uh, the first piece of advice I will give them is exactly what the entire enterprise software sales corporate world is is uh, not doing, which is uh, be patient and work on your craft and don't cut corners and uh, and don't go after the next promotion or after short term money, but really work on your foundations. Because this is a marathon, right? If your ambition is to being amazing at what you do in the long term, you're not going to win or lose in the next couple of quarters. Uh, you're going to win in the next 20 years, 15 years, 10 years. That's what you're going to do. And unfortunately, the whole world is trying to make people believe that uh, you know they should be rushing into promotions and bigger titles and more money in the short term. And I think it's a giant mistake because it's like it's betraying those 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 young uh, young people, right? That's one piece of advice which is very difficult to give because most of the time people, I, I'm not sure I would have, I was able to listen to this one, even if it was given to me many times, including by Carlo, I had a hard time listening to it. And I wish I could uh, talk to the, to those people with, uh, to these younger sales people with the eyes and the experience I have right now, because I, you know, it, it's too bad. I saw so many mistakes uh, there. The other, um, piece of advice I will tell them is that out of all the leaders I've worked with, let's call it this way, I've got 20 to 30% of them which were really bad. Maybe, you know, 40% which were, whether they were there or not, will not change anything. And then I've got maybe 10, 15% which were amazing. Now, the way to deal with the amazing leaders is easy, right? You get inspired, you observe, you listen, uh, and you try to work on yourself and uh, you imitate someone. And, and that's, that's an easy one. Vast majority of those leaders are there, which are without any color. They don't hurt, but they don't add any value. You need to be able to use them. By using them, I mean, I give you something to execute on, you do it for me so that I can do my job. And as a young salesperson, you need to recognize that, right? It's not because your leader doesn't add values that you can't still progress your career. And the third piece I would say is when you bump into a bad leader, that's another learning opportunity about when you're gonna be in his or her shoes, here's what you'll never do. Here's what you are going to avoid yeah. at any cost, right? Yeah. And you suffer the pain out of it. And it's horrible. And this is why it's an even better lesson. And that happened to me many times. And sometimes, and uh, McMahon knows that I've been, you know, screaming and, and complaining a lot and, and being very difficult to handle as well. And uh, because I was suffering and going through the pain, right? And, but if I look back, I say, you know, what did I learn there? And what I remember, I'm going to make you a specific example. I remember a sales call. So I had been used to sales call with Carlo. And when Carlo will get me, we, so first of all, he will never, we will never get in a sales call, even with the chief executive of, of Ferrari, without me in the room. And not only that, as a rep, right? Mm. So Carlo will always consider that the most important person in the room is a rep. And he was right. In a sales-driven organization, the most important people in the room is a rep. Not only that, but every time I will get in that room, he will give me a lot of credit in front of the customer and try to empower me and to help me, put me in the driver's seat because he understood that this is about developing me. It's not only about being successful in that specific sales call. And he will always be there to rescue the situation if needed, but he has the maturity to do that. Then I move into another leader a few years later. And uh, I, get, I go into this third sales call. The guy was head of FEMEA. And uh, we... Uh, we get in the call, we sit in front of those guys, and uh, that my leader takes over the conversation, introduces himself, gets everyone introduced, run the whole meeting, we go out, and I never say a word. 
So he gets mm. out of the meeting and he goes like, "How did I, he tell?" He, he asks me, "How do you think it went?" Right? Um, and uh, I told him, "Well, it's not like you just promoted yourself into being the rep on this account because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going, I'm not going so to, good. I'm not going to, I'm not going to follow up on that, right? So I have zero empowerment. Customer doesn't understand. So that's, so you see that you know, depending on the mindset of the leaders, uh, that can very little things can really hurt someone in the way you, uh, in the way you uh, you behave uh, yeah. or not." And sometimes, so, Cedric, what happens is for for sellers listening, let's say you're working for you know a, a great leader or just a leader that is a, a great seller. So many times what I see sellers do is they abdicate their power to the sales leader and they give that sales leader no choice. So they don't prepare. It's like <clears throat> Johnny Mac, we call it then a miracle happens. Let me go on a sales call with Johnny yes. Mac and then a miracle happens. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. And, what, and what happens is left to our own devices, I've been on the other end of this, left to our own devices, of course I'm going to take over a sales call. Of course I'm going to execute or what have you. And then what happens is it's very difficult for that seller to get that relationship. They've abdicated that relationship to their sales leader and then vice versa. The sales leader that doesn't do a good job of empowering the seller takes over in a sales call. You have a very difficult time giving it back to that seller. So I think what you just hit on there is don't either either role that you have do not abdicate your role to somebody else. Yeah, yeah there is another coming back on the, the John's question around what piece of on your question on one piece of advice you would give to a uh, younger. Another way I will say it is what I've seen many times, I'm first to get your guys' opinion. Slow success builds character and fast success builds ego. Yeah, I think uh, that's true. That's very true. Really, and, very, very and what you saw nice. with what Carlo did with you is he was more enamored with the process of your development and not the short-term result of going and getting a deal. And that's really the difference between you know, a great leader that's there to develop their people versus somebody that's only there trying to, you know, transact and get a deal. The other th part that you brought up, Cedric, is, you know, some leaders, it's very, your relationship with them is very transactional. Like I ask you to do this in return for you to get you some money and you not be penalized versus what Carlo was doing with you is very transformative. He was trying to transform you from this young salesperson into, you know, an amazing salesperson. It's really a big difference between, you know, transactional leaders and transformative leaders. Yeah, completely agree with that. Yeah. Hey, um, Cedric, I want to change gears a little bit and I want to talk about you, which I don't, I'm not sure everybody knows this about you. You were a competitive skier and I don't, when I say competitive skier, I'm not saying like, you know, I'm saying not like Kaplan playing football. I'm talking about like you were on the national team, you were on the national team, the French national team. You grew up in, in the mountains in France, your parent, your, your, your whole family was involved in skiing and skiing instruction. Could you talk a little bit about how your athletic background has really kind of shaped you and, and, and molded you specifically just your experience of competing. I think you started competing at like five years old or something like that. Yeah, I competed. Uh, I, yeah, I started the, no, maybe not competing not, but like I started the, in, like skiing is one of those sports where you can't, you can't start late. And lucky enough, my father was a ski teacher and a mountain guide. We're living in a ski resort. So the whole family was in the ski business. So was difficult to do something else uh, except nothing, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's uh, where, uh, uh, and then, you know, I grew up um, in this environment, uh, still my, my, my family is in this business. And, uh, uh, and, um, and I guess that those years were, were, were very formative, let's say, in two ways, let's say, without getting into the, um, into the weeds. I think the first one was sport. Uh, ski is a sport where you can uh, you do take risks, and therefore you 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 quickly learn to deal with 
fear. Yeah. Um, especially in downhill. And I guess that uh, that I didn't realize it in the early years, but that helped me a lot because my perception of risk was from the get go, as soon as I stopped skiing, uh, was very different from most people's perception of risk. And um, and even to these days, in some ways, they are, you know, when things don't go well, obviously, I'm not bumped. Uh, I'm not super happy, but, you know, I kind of uh, put them into perspective. Um, I really get anxious for, you know, a board meeting or, or, or whatever. That helped me a lot. And, uh, and the other one is that, uh, that I pursued a big dream for many years. And obviously, I never became an Olympic champion. And obviously, you know, I never achieved what I uh, wanted to achieve in the first years. But I know how important that journey has been. And how I realized later on how, you know, my old childhood uh, uh, was, was uh, shaped by uh, this big dream, right? And I do believe that even if I never achieved it, I wasn't talented enough uh, and, you know, a bunch of reasons, but um, it doesn't take away from the importance of the dream and how much drive it put into me and energy it put into me, right? And I do believe that back to business, it's extraordinarily important for people to want to make a big name for themselves and have an impact and change the fucking world, right? Especially in the early years. Then you get older and instead of, you know, wanting to change the world, you you start realizing that it might be wiser to try to change yourself first. Right? But yeah. in early years, you're like, you're like, let's go and change the world uh, and have a big dream and have a big ambition. When I was, you know, one of the 900, 900 reps in the PTC Salesforce, I was looking up to McMahon. I, I wanted to be McMahon one day. Um, and, uh, and that drove me for many, many years, right? Um, and uh, so that's sport has given me, for sure. Yeah. Hey, Cedric, I've also known you to be very detail oriented. And I always wondered, did that go? And it must go back to before you're going to go strap on some skis and go downhill at 90 miles an hour, you better pay attention to the details. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. hundred percent. I think that, uh, I think there are two sides there. There is one, which is, uh, there are big consequences, which are hiding in the details. If you don't take care of them, that's your yeah. point, I guess, right? Like potentially, you know, between 98 degrees uh, where water doesn't boil and 100 degrees, there is a difference. And those two degrees are actually incredibly important. And it's true when you, I see many times teams implementing a process and then getting to a conclusion and say the process doesn't work, but then you never know if this is execution of the process, mm, which doesn't right. work or the process itself, right? And I think the other aspect of this is I uh, I do believe that greatness in sales implies or requires a lot of curiosity, like intellectual curiosity. And curiosity has to do with details, right? Like traveling and like uh, navigating, you know, the stories up to the last level so that you actually understand them and can say, okay, I get the point. I get the point, but not superficially. I don't like just like, you know, kind of get it. I actually get it to the last bit and bite. Uh, and this is where I think attention to details is important in business. It was important in uh, in my uh, in my uh, short short sport career, but very important in business. It helped me a lot. That's for sure. Now, Cedric, hey. there was an amazing French skier who won three gold medals. A guy named Jean Claude Keely. Yeah. Hopefully, I pronunciated that right. Yeah. And when you were just a young lad, you wrote him a letter, and he wrote you back. You want to. Talk yeah, yeah, it's funny. That story, that story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wasn't expecting you to bring that up today, but um, I guess that uh, my dad was in 1968. There was an Olympic Games in France in Grenoble, and Kili won three gold medals there: uh, giant slalom and downhill. And he won the downhill with nine cents of a second ahead of the second one. And my father was a ski teacher uh, in Chanrousse at the time. It was, he was like 22, 23, I guess. And uh, so he saw that happening, right? And therefore, when I was born in 72, four years later, instead of talking to me about Santa Claus, you know, he will always talk to me about Jean-Claude Killy, right? <laughs> so, 
So, uh, you know, later on, as soon as I was able to write, I would start writing those letters to Jean-Claude Killy because at home it was the only thing we would you know, care about was, you know, how do you become Jean-Claude Killy one day, right? And so I will write those letters and most of them, thank God, uh, my mother will take them and put them into a, you know, a drawer. Uh, but a couple of them she sent and, um, and he answered, uh, he answered twice at the time. The first one was a postal card where it was written, you know, uh, to my friend Cedric Goodsking. And the other one was a, a letter where you will write, remember, no need to win with two seconds, nine cents are enough, mm. are sufficient, right? Mm -hmm. So I get these things and fast forward 2010 or 2011, John, uh, we were at BMC and I have a, one of my uh, many motivational crises. And, uh, you know, I'm at my post quarter, end of quarter flu. Uh, with pressure going down and I'm cleaning my home office with fever and I'm coughing and I'm in a bad place. And, and I bump into these two uh, answers from Kili of, you know, 30 years before, right? And um, I'm like watching, staring at these two letters and I'm like, why did you, I moved in the meantime 15 times all around the world. And I'm like, why did you keep that with you for so many years, right? I'm asking myself. I go on the internet and uh, bump into his address and I write him a letter. And I'm not. This going is to, in twenty. This is in twenty ten. Twenty ten. Twenty ten. Yeah. And uh, in the letter, I'm not going to uh, give you the details. It's too long, and we don't have the time here. But the letter goes substantially this way. It goes like, uh, you know, you don't remember me, obviously, uh, but I do remember you. And uh, here's what happened in those years. I was writing to you. You were answering, and you know, thank you for doing that because. You know, uh, even to these days, the way uh, the re your answers contribute even to these days that I, you know, wake up in the morning and try to live the day just like if it was the last one and try to put some intensity in what I'm doing, right? Because that big dream that I was pursuing at the time is still, is still the principle is still there, right? And therefore, I conclude and I say, you know, how could not I thank you for that? Send you, uh, take a few minutes to write this letter and thank you for that. But I send that letter like you send a bottle in the ocean without ever <laughs> hoping to uh, get an answer right yeah. i was i was up, so I, I then you know get back on my in my uh, in my my flights and go around the world and my wife calls me a few days later and she she goes like i didn't tell her right anything and she goes like uh, Kili answered you and i'm like how do you know that he answered me i never told you that i sent anything to him and uh, it's like you know a letter with uh, olympic uh, you know circles uh, from him uh, handwritten and so i fly back open the letter and uh, and the guy goes like uh, the letter starts in this way it goes uh i'm still i'm still uh you know emotional when i talk about that uh it, it goes uh it goes uh, cedric i've been answering autographs for the past 40 years and still to this day i answer a few weeks your letter in itself justifies the effort for the past 40 years Thank you uh, so much for that. And then he goes, keeps going for a few things, you know, about the importance of the journey to get there and not the final result. Um, and a few other things around that. And he, he signs up, you know, thank you uh, to my friend Cedric Goodskin again. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was quite a moment, uh, especially the guy. It's like where you like, you know that he understands. We don't yes. need to meet. We want. We will ever, never meet. I don't want to meet him. Uh, I don't want to break anything, right? But you know he knows. You know he knows, right? And you know that all those guys which or gals which try to achieve something important in their lives, they all think in the same way. They all have the same, you know, big dream behind, uh, behind them which pushed uh, them. He organized the Olympic Games three or four times. He's the only man to this day who resigned from the International Olympic Committee. He said, I've done my job. I don't need, you guys don't need me any longer. And then he goes, right? Uh, so he does have character and honor and, uh, you know, it's, it's something. He's quite someone. Wow. Great story. So, so you have mentioned in Johnny Mac, we have heard how many times in the last months of doing these interviews, this, the journey, uh, there's a dream. But the journey to the dream, uh, somebody the other day referenced Kobe Bryant. You know, Kobe Bryant didn't talk about the championships. He talked about the the journey of competing and being the best. Um, and so, Cedric, you, you, you've been in this, this professional grind 
you have, you know, been in this journey. And I just want to take a, a moment, if you're comfortable with it. I remember a, probably one of my most profound conversations with you happened a few years ago <clears throat> when you and I were talking. It was very late for you. Um, the kids were, you were, you had, you had to call me back because you had to put the kids down. And um, we had a conversation where you were reflecting and you took a break. Like you were in the journey. It was important for you to take a break and reflect. And I, 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 I don't want to uh, lessen the significance of that by lack of eloquence of me relating the story. Would you just give some advice uh, to folks that are in the grind that are, um, you know, every now and then when you have to reflect on the purpose, reflect on the dream, reflect on the journey, <clears throat> why was it important for you to take a break to kind of reset? Yeah, I think it was even more than uh, taking a break to reset. It really was. Uh, I stopped three times actually working in my life. Uh, and uh, that time that you refer to, um, I had burnt out. I remember, you know, I resigned. And then uh, the first week, it feels amazing. And then the second week, I'm like standing in this supermarket queue or whatever you call it, line. And, uh, you know, feeling unsettled because people make me wait in the line yeah. and being, uh, you know, unable to stay within myself. And uh, from there, uh, it didn't go anywhere better. I'm not going to get in the details, but uh, it's, it's been a brutal, so to say, journey, right? And, um, and somehow, you know, it was uh, before the Bazaar Voice days, uh, John, right? And uh, yeah. somehow uh, I recovered, but um, that I will never forget in many ways, in the sense that, you know, one of the things I learned in this thing is that uh, we are not undestroyable. Um, and uh, being good at what we do also implies that we are able to protect ourselves and to take care of ourselves. And that is, I think, uh, something that most very driven people don't realize in their early years. At least I didn't. Maybe others are smarter than I, I was and, and didn't realize it before. But uh, we have, uh, you know, in the way I think about MongoDB today, whoever joins the company, we have this big, uh, we have a few values in the sales executive team. And one of them is we are going to win, but not at any cost. And the line that we are going to draw is the line where you, people get hurt uh, in their families, their health, uh, or their uh, you know, uh, personal balance. And our challenge as leaders for ourselves and for the people working with us is to push them to the brink, but not to the point where uh, they lose themselves. I don't want anyone to go to where I've been. Uh, and uh, I don't think it's uh, fair to ask for that. And I think you can excel without doing that. Um, too many scarves, uh, which I could have saved uh, myself. One of the reasons why I'm still here in Europe, right, is because somehow, John, I found that one time in my life, I said, I'm going to be able to draw, I'm going to draw a line in the sand. And, uh, you know, I could have moved to the US like I did already in the past, as you both well know. Um, but there is a moment where I said, uh, I'm going to either, you know, I'm going to do the best I can uh, and living close to my olive trees. Um, and, uh, and the reason it's not for the olive trees, it's more a symbolic thing, right? Like it's like, this is a, the, the, the line in the sand where for me, it was like, I will keep a distance and protect myself from, uh, you know, if I had been maybe living in Boston or New York or, uh, or San Francisco, I might have, you know, spent much more time in my life trying to catch up with the Genesis or uh, or getting into an environment where uh, you know I didn't have enough distance uh, and others are able to do it I'm not talking it's the same thing for everyone right as far as I'm concerned I needed to have this caution of protection uh, to keep my balance and sense of perspective which at the end turned out to be of some help to me because I do believe that it helped me being a, a little more balanced and a better leader yeah uh, ironically so to say yeah Cedric you know I always say if you don't take care of yourself as a leader, you know, no one else will. And you touched on the word that I always think about is perspective. And as a leader, 
everybody underneath you is counting on you to have the proper perspective. So when you lose yourself, you kind of lose perspective and you can't make really great decisions as a leader. So, and we've all faced it where we just go too hard, too hard, too hard. And we don't really know where the limit is until all of a sudden we cross that limit. Um, so And it's, it's too late. It's, it's and you're tough. like, and you look, you look and yeah. like, you're like, fuck. And you, I, I wish I had listened to McMahon when he said, you need to protect yourself and take care of yourself. And you're like, and you're <laughs> like, did, and you're like, we did have that conversation. Yeah. And you're like, and it's ironic because you're like, oh, that's what he meant. Uh, you know, but it's too late. Right. <laughs> right. <Just> like, <laughs> hey, Johnny Mac, before I do uh, um, a summary here. Of some golden nuts because we had so many. I don't want to. I don't want to miss them. Is there anything that we haven't covered that that we that we had planned to cover with sure, our friends? Tons of things, but you know, <laughs> we'd have to have Cedric back for another couple of hours. So, which which I'd love, which I'd love to do. Cedric, do you mind? And Johnny, do you mind if I just do a quick, um, just a quick recap on some of the things that we talked about? We talked about in the beginning. Um, Cedric, you had this theme about purpose in your leadership style. You had this thing. It, it, it's always about purpose. And you made the point of reflecting on that before you try to figure out what the purpose is for the people, for the culture, what have you. You got to make sure that your purpose for yourself first is set. And then you're in, you're in shape to be able to do that for your people, which is so relatable to what we just talked about on um, you know, potentially burning out. But you put people in three buckets. You put those leaders in, you know, those that are focused on compensation and paycheck and um, very, very short-sighted and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't go very far in culture. And then you talked about the execution tools, those leaders that focus on execution, messaging and ideal customer profile and execution tools. And that's important, but you said that it, it can't, It can't just rely and stay there. You talked about the leaders that really focus on the purpose of starting with the why. And then Johnny talked about the what and the how are easy. <clears throat> and you said without the why, it's just a grind. Um, and, then, and it's just exclusively for a paycheck. And that never is sustainable for your people. I loved your quote. I didn't catch the author, um, uh, the Uh, the French uh, author that said, um, you know, teach your people how to long for the sea versus gather the wood to build the boat. I thought that was powerful. We talked about patriots versus mercenaries. Carlo Carpinelli, uh, God rest his soul. Um, you made a very specific statement, which I, I, I loved and I wrote it down. I said, he believed in me more than I believed in myself. And therefore, I immediately had a feeling of not wanting to disappoint him. And what a powerful, powerful uh, leadership message uh, that you shared there. You talked about, you know, you're really in leaders are in the business. They're in the people business. There's people process and technology. And those leaders that figure out the people part are have a tremendous advantage. You gave some advice to our listeners who might be young sellers that are thinking about, you know, it, you know, the grind and it's hard. And, and you gave the advice that said, be patient and work on your craft. If you are listening to this podcast, you are probably in that category of uh, working on your craft. So celebrate that. You talked about success being a marathon versus a sprint. And then you also talked about, you know, in our lives, we're not always going to be blessed with, you know, having great leaders. You said your experiences, 20% of them are really bad. 60% of them are, you know, okay. And then 20% of them are probably amazing. And over your lifetime, you have to learn how to, uh, even with the bad ones, I, I really love this because I've given this advice to my own children. If you have bad leaders, bad coaches, bad teachers, bad bosses, there's still something you could learn. And what you said was when you become a leader, you're going to learn what you don't want to do as a leader. So even being in that bad situation is still powerful. Leaders, <clears throat> we talked about the rep is more important in the room than you. Such great advice because I think so many leaders get that wrong. And I think so many reps get it wrong. 
you don't want to abdicate your responsibility. You don't want to abdicate your role uh, either way. Um, but the great leaders give the credit and prop up uh, the sellers in a relationship so they can successfully uh, have those relationships with customers on their own. Um, slow success builds character. Fast success builds ego. Really powerful. And then your skiing background. You talked about learning uh, how to deal with risk at a very, very young age and risk um, uh, and not being afraid of risk. Um, the journey versus <clears throat> the dream of the Olympics. And because you invested so much in the journey, you were able to convert your dream to being you know, the best uh, leader that you could possibly be, the best business leader that you could possibly be because you focused on the journey. And details are where the consequences lie. Um, I thought that was really, really powerful. And the last thing we spoke about was taking care of yourself as a leader, uh, having perspective uh, and making sure that um, you do that self-care because when you're at that leadership level, nobody else will care for you the way that you will care for yourself. Johnny, what did I miss? I'm going to give you an A plus on that summary cap. So let's... Uh, <laughs> I agree with let, that. Let, <laughs> let me move to the rapid fire questions with Cedric. Is that all right? Let's do it. All right, Cedric, we got four rapid fire questions for you. Ready? Okay. Ideal day off of work. Skiing. It's a day where my family and I sail on the Mediterranean Ooh. Sea, and it's a beautiful, warm, sunny morning, and you know, wind is blowing, but not too much. The boat, the boat is fast, and the waves, are, and the waves are, uh, and the sails is just powerful, and it just goes and goes like a machine. That is a great day. Wow! Awesome. Favorite meal. Uh, I'll say that this is the one that I prepare uh, in my country house with my kids, my wife, a uh, couple of fry-ins, um, a glass of wine, and uh, the four seasons of Vivaldi in the background. There you go. <laughs> He's become a romantic, John. I've just lost. I've just lost the two Johns here with the four seasons of Vivaldi. <laughs> <laughs> He's French and Italian, of course. I'm getting cultured here. I'm good. I'm still romantic. with you. Yeah. Favorite <laughs> movie, Cedric. My favorite movie is a movie from the 80s, a French movie from the 80s. I'm going to lose you as well here. It's uh, called Itinéraire d'un enfant gâté, which means uh, path or journey of a spoiled kid, uh, which takes, talks about this uh, kid which is abandoned by his uh, parents and who is mother and who becomes a big entrepreneur. And one day he decides to quit everything. And... Um, and to disappear, orchestrate is a is a is a, you know he just disappears. He, he, he acts like he uh, he was dead, uh, but he actually disappeared. And he does it on purpose, right? And I'm sure we all have that dream today, uh, one day, which was like you know, why don't I fucking quit on everything and disappear? And and you know, <laughs> and 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 I don't, I don't have to go through this grinder again, right? Like. Uh, yeah. And the listen from the movie, which I always love, is like uh, happiness is only real when it's shared. And on mm. your own, uh, you know, on your own, you don't, uh, you, ca you can achieve whatever you want, but on your own, it's going to be lonely and painful. Johnny, we can build, we can have like a calendar and on each month we can have like Cedricisms. These are, <laughs> these are powerful. When did you get, you got very, very, uh, very reflective, my friend. Yes, very, you know, very well done. I'm, I've just turned my 50, right? So the, the guarantee is I'm running out of, uh, of time, right? So I need to reflect a little. <laughs> Well All right, done. Cedric, last one. Best concert you've ever been to? It's been the one which I went like a month ago where my daughter Camilla was playing the violin here in the Rome uh, Auditorium with her uh, mates. Wow. Uh, wow. That was cool. Uh, or if you want to see an amazing moment uh, of, of uh, music, and I, I hope I'm not going to lose here here. Why does he always assume he's going to lose us on because the cerebral speak, stuff, if I, Johnny? If I speak about uh, about like classical music, I'm like a little. I'm shocked. in. Let's go. I mean, McMahon is going to follow me, but you know, I don't know about <laughs> you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think you know uh, there's this uh, Leonard Bernstein. He was like uh, one, probably the biggest conductor of all times. Like he's yes. like the Tom Grady of of uh, of uh, you know conducting an orchestra and. There is this moment in uh, in Vienna, I think it's in the 80s, where he uh, conducts this uh, symphony number uh, 88 of Haydn. 
only with his stare. So there is an orchestra with, you know, a hundred people, super high level performance musicians. And the guy only with his stare uh, drives the whole orchestra wow. without moving an inch. And you can mm. see the charisma and the power of this director of orchestra, which is just, you know, spreading through the room. Wow. Kind, of, kind of powerful. I, w- I wish I had been in that room that day. Well, Cedric, I'm really grateful to have had you on the podcast. I think it, you um, gave the audience a bunch of, you know, great information and golden nuggets. So just want to thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. Thank you to uh, both of you. It's always a pleasure uh, to uh, to chat with the two of you. And uh, hopefully we're going to be able to do that soon without a, a camera or uh, a microphone. Uh, yeah, man. exactly. Cedric, you have been one of my favorite people that I ever met along the journey. Um, I remember meeting you in the early days of PTC and then just watching you and your career. And I've always just been really, really uh, impressed. You're a great friend. Thanks for coming on. And uh, we wish you nothing but continued success, brother. Keep it going. Thank you so much. You guys stay uh, safe. All right. Well done. Thanks. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.